Welcome to Thrive Deeper, the show based on the Thrive Bible Reading Guides. This is an ongoing conversation about God's Word with Thrive author, Dr. Matthew Jacoby. Morning, Matthew. Morning. How are you going? Yeah, good. We're sitting here with like multiple... You know, multiple things. Yeah, there's hardly room on the desk. No, that's Bibles right. and computers. I, I've, I've got my phone with one with list of notes and uh, and my iPad with the text open and all sorts of notes through that. Uh, man, we've got some. There's there's plenty of detail here today, Stu, there's, uh, to there's get sure through. Is. But there's some great stuff. That's sure. Is. What are we looking at? Well, welcome, listeners. Great to have you with us for Thrive Deeper, and uh, we are picking up and continuing our journey uh, through the Book of Ezekiel. And Matt, we've kind of, we're moving into now the future hope. Uh, you know, we've been through uh, the the defeat of um, the the tribes of Israel, really, yeah. and, and the southern kingdom in exile. This this yeah. vision is coming to Ezekiel in exile, uh, but now we're looking forward to a future to a future hope as we pick up from Ezekiel chapter forty, yeah. and we're going to try and work our way to the end of the book. Now, interesting, as I've done a bit of research on this particular passage, it seems that quite a number of biblical scholars would acknowledge that this vision of this new temple uh, is pretty difficult to interpret, Yeah, um, and, and some have even described it as being the most difficult to interpret yeah, in the Old Testament. Yeah. So, you know, it, it's going to be interesting to talk to talk mm. through this and, uh, and see what it is that God is trying to say to us, but also to Ezekiel in that time, in that moment, yeah, to those it's, people. It's, it's difficult, but it's really fascinating the way that this is all set out and this is this vision that he has of not only the temple but the land yes. uh, and uh it, it's uh it's this amazing theological vision like three-dimensional theology and so much of the details um because we've got to remember that this is a vision. It's not like yes. when you know when Moses went up to the mountain and received the instructions for the tabernacle. It is. It's different to that in nature. This is we've seen Ezekiel having visions before. We're going to uh, when we turn over to the book of Daniel in the next episode. Yeah. Uh, we're going to see visions that Daniel has of of you know composite creatures coming out of the sea and yeah. and all of these. Visions they they're presenting truths in a very colourful way yep. that people at that time could connect with, and we we've got to be uh, remember that that the people are connecting with this uh, with a level of immediacy that we don't necessarily yes. connect with, and certainly Ezekiel, because remember Ezekiel is a priest mm. and he's very familiar with the temple. Um, the, the at this stage. Um, and the temple practices and everything yeah, that's right. around that. Because we, we look back knowing what we know about Jesus, but of course yeah. they didn't know that at this point in time. Yeah. So, and, and they still remember, even though we're 25 years into the still exile, yeah. uh, we're still you know we're still in memory of the temple and, and the yeah. people would have carried that memory of the temple. And so this, this vision of the land and the temple, it really does speak to a people that are immersed in that kind of symbolism yeah. and that world. And so... It's both the similarities and the differences that are going to speak to this because there are some things that were very familiar to them that are now going to change and that's going to speak volumes. So, But big picture, Stu, um, the importance of this vision at the end of the book is, you know, we've had this, you know, these chapters th- 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones. Yes. 
you know, we're now moving from a valley to a mountain. You know, we've had the dry bones and then we've had the great victory. Mm-hmm. And look, even even in ancient Near Eastern literature about that talks about uh, these big religious themes, there is this pattern of, you know, of the God overcoming his enemies and then establishing his temple. That's a, now, now whether, whether this is, he's using that same literary pattern. I mean, that may be the case. Right. Uh, this is referring though to something that, you know, a sequence that we see in a number of different ways in prophetic literature about the future. You know, there's judgment and then there's the establishment of a new, King. new kingdom, new re, uh, creation, Gen- really. Yep. And so, yep. so this is, associated with that idea you know the the uh, gog and Ma- the battle of gog and magog um you know we've we've been pushed to look really even to our future there yes, yeah. and there's every reason to think that what we're reading here is looking beyond that even yeah. okay so yeah. now uh, there's a question around to what degree of literalness do you is that a word? Literal- literality. literality. <laughs> do you uh, do you ascribe to this? You know, I, I think again, this is where we need to remember it's a vision, and yes. um, there's so much theology here in, involved in the various mm. elements of this. Mm. It's not that this could not be done, but it's such that you know th- there's enough theology to here to think that look. This could be a, a really a graphic way of presenting the future reality to a people steeped in this sort of imagery and this symbolism. Yeah. It's actually a very appropriate way to present a future reality that transcends anything to do with temples and specific land divisions. Uh, I mean, for example, in the land divisions, you've got all the 12 tribes. I don't know if you noticed right. this, yes. but you get all of the 12 tribes, um, the traditional 12 tribes, which which by this stage have completely disappeared yeah. into, the, into the nations. And mm. so really, in order to recover those 12 of tribes, you're really talking about the ingathering of the nations. Yes. But there's still in in the way that these divisions work out, you know, it's speaking, it's still speaking theologically to that. Now there are some that say, no, no, this is something that's going to be fulfilled in a very liter- literary sense, in either, you know, maybe within in the say in the millennium, for example, if yep. uh, for those who uh, hold to a literal thousand years following yes. the return of Christ, because yep. remember, a lot of scholars see this period as as the Revelation twenty uh, millennium. Um, others see the return of Christ and then uh, a literal millennium after yeah. that. The, yeah. You know, the scene is pretty split between yeah. those sort of options. So there, th- there's room, perhaps, you know, for a, a literal f- yeah. fulfilment. But you know, again, I- even if you do hold to a literal fulfilment of this of this temple, it's still you're still looking yeah. at something that is meant to convey something beyond itself. Yes. Yeah. So even, you know, so the the first temple, there was a literal temple, obviously. Yeah. Uh, you can, you know, we, you t- today you can visit the the, the sort of remains uh, of the temple platform, but that literal temple still pointed to something beyond itself. It was three-dimensional theology and it was meant to convey something yeah. uh, beyond just itself. So, yeah. now, uh, now, saying that yeah. it's a vision, important to remember this isn't just a dream of Ezekiel's or Ezekiel's way of trying to figure out 
how do I cast yeah. hope to these people? This is a vision that Ezekiel got from the Lord, at, like all the other yeah. visions that yeah. he has got, and those visions did come to pass. So yeah. we're not, um, that doesn't to say this is literal, but it's not, I wouldn't want listeners to think that it's just Ezekiel trying to figure out a way to create some hope here. This is God taking Ezekiel and giving him this vision. Yeah. And yeah. So, I mean, remember, you know, one of those visions is the vision of the valley of the dry bones correct. and the yes. dry bones having flesh and, 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 and yes, that is, I mean, he's talking there about reviving a dead people of God. Yes. Uh, that is, and, and we would say that that began to be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Yes. Because the day of Pentecost with the blow, the blowing wind, wind. and everything oh, really evokes yep. that imagery. And, yeah, and, totally. and I think it wants, you know, I mean, Luke wants to, us to see that that is the fulfillment yeah. of Ezekiel chapter 37. So there, there is a theological uh, fulfillment. I mean, there's also potentially a literal fulfillment in the resurrection. But uh, the point of these visions really is conveying something mm. theological uh, in a, you know, in yep, this totally. uh, picturesque. Sort and of I form. think it would be correct to say that that certainly this vision, in a literal sense, has not been fulfilled as yet. There's not been a temple built like this, even no. when they did return, the temple was not built like this. So, yep. if we are thinking, if if you know, listeners are thinking this potentially could be a literal temple, then clearly it hasn't happened yet. So it's yep. it's definitely future. Either way, we look yep. at this; it's a future vision. Yeah, that's right. So, so the vision is just to summarize. Yep. Uh, if in case listeners, uh, you know, if you haven't uh, read this and and you're not familiar with these chapters, so from chapter forty through to forty eight, we have uh, this vision where Ezekiel is taken and he's taken to the land and he sees this new temple and it's it's a temple that in in many ways is like Solomon's temple, but it has some very key differences uh, and uh, it's a temple that is also within a land that has land divisions that in in some ways mirror the actual temple itself so right. there's uh, in in the same way as within the temple you have uh, you know a holy of holies and then a holy place and then you have a sacred precinct and then outer courts and and you have these gradations of of yes. holiness of separateness uh, so to speak yeah uh, you also have in the divisions of the land. You have this sacred strip. So if if you if you think of the, the land of Israel as as the strip from you know present day Lebanon down to you know uh, I mean the uh, the Gulf of Aqaba. Mm. I think different people might find this difficult to picture, but it's basically that strip of land at the far uh, eastern edge of the Mediterranean, yes. right? And and basically. What what you can picture is with the division of the land is these strips of of land that go that go down like stripes horizontal stripes, and so it's much it's much more um uh what's the word like symmetrical or because because he you know he basically places in the middle a, a, a sacred strip yes and then moving out from that sacred strip are all the tribes you know uh, there's there's the the priests and the levites mm-hmm. uh, you know have have there and then you've got benjamin and judah on either yes. side and then you move out and even even the organization of the of the of the where the which tribes is even significant you know yes. there's a yeah like so, joseph gets two Stripes, I think, isn't it? Uh, well, uh, actually, Joseph, uh, the um, yes, yes, that's right. Yeah. Yep. So, um, so you get this e- even in you know which tribes are chosen, are chosen. We won't get too much into those details. Yeah. So you get this mirroring uh, of of these degrees of you know sort of holiness in in that sort of sense. Now, the importance of this, Stu, is that 
in all of this, um, so first of all, there's in, in the in the context of salvation history, in the context of the book. Okay, so in in the context of salvation history, what this looks like is is it the same sort of language of separation and ordering as you have in Genesis chapter one. You know, Genesis chapter one, God separated this from that, separated this from that. Right. Yeah. The language of separating is uh, repeated there because it's associated with holiness. You separate this from this and distinction is very important. And so you get this same language of ordering here in the temple. So this is this is where this is the language of a kind of new creation. And that's that's in the big salvation history, which is what uh, perhaps lends support to this being a sort of a theological depiction of a new creation. Mm-hmm. Now, what also lends strength to that interpretation is the fact that clearly Revelation chapter 21 and 22, but particularly chapter 22, draws very much, very yeah. explicitly, yeah, actually, on Ezekiel's temple. Mm. But there too, in the same way as Ezekiel's temple makes some changes to Solomon's temple in order to say something, so in the vision given to John in the book of Revelation, there are changes there also right. that reflect. Uh, so, for example, you get the holy city, the New Jerusalem, uh, this vision of the New Jerusalem, as I said, clearly draws from Ezekiel's temple, but you don't get the actual uh, holy of ho- the, like yes. the temple buildings yeah. in there. No, it's, it says in Revelation twenty-two. You know, there was no temple in the midst, and the idea is that the whole thing the is is really the temple. And you the know, in a sense, yeah, and the river, and you get the yeah. river of life and yeah. so forth. And so this move from Solomon's, well, from the tabernacle, Solomon's temple, then to uh, Ezekiel's temple, then to John's uh, holy city in Revelation, you get this kind of sequence that in itself, that development has enormous theological significance, the way that the one moves to the other, because it's an unfolding vision based on how much has already been revealed. Right. You know what I mean? Yep. Um, And so I think uh, that's, again, that's where where I think we need to focus on the theology being conveyed by these things, whether or not it's that there is going to be a literal mm. fulfillment of it, this is less important. It's interesting though, because it is so specific, isn't it? It's like, it, it's like, uh, you know, begs the question, why be so specific? And, and it all works. I've seen yeah. you know, 3d depictions of what this temple would look like. Yeah. And uh, why, why so much specific? specificity around dimensions and where things are placed and how many windows and how many pillars and that there's palm trees and that there's cherubim and yeah. all the specific specificity <laughs> why uh why if that's perhaps we're saying not important you know are we not saying that it's not important yeah well it's remember you know he's he's painting a picture with words here for people to imagine this now w- when you know a building really well uh, you know, and you've got it in your head, particularly for, for right. He's giving a tour, and and you're you're recognizing differences as you're going through. Oh, hang on, it's like, you know, if, you know, described in a vision, your house, and then you know, we go here. Oh, hang on, what? No, the, that's not the, where that yeah, is. Yeah, that's not yeah. where that is, and and that's bigger than that, or smaller than that. Or, yeah, right. Okay. So it's and, and so you're right. I mean, w- we can create now, and and there are some great pictures of Ezekiel's temple. You can just Google it, mm. you know, a model uh, reconstruction of Ezekiel's temple. Now, that that is the point. The mm. point is that there's enough detail here that we can actually create models of this, right. um, and we can see it, what it looks like. And the importance of that is that in the same with the first temple, that what it looks like is, impor- is actually important because it conveys three-dimensional theology. Now, as I said 
you know, that there is there are some who do see that the possible literal fulfillment, and that may be the case. But as I said, even if there is, that's still pointing yes. beyond itself. Yes. You know what I mean? That's still it has something that has symbolic exactly significance, right? right? Yeah. So yeah. either way, we need to focus on the symbolic significance. Yes. That's, that was even the case with the first temple that was certainly real. Yeah. It begged us to look at the th- its theological significance. And the tabernacle. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So we've moved uh, here. The big problem, of course, in the early chapters of Ezekiel, of course, is the departure of the glory of the Lord from uh, from the, the temple. temple. So, yep. And the big question for the Jewish people this time was the rebuilding of the temple. That was, for them, uh, in, in a world of temples, that was what the answer, God returning to, to us, or us returning to God, that's, yeah. it definitely revolved around the question mm. uh, of the temple. So the good news for Ezekiel will have to look like something like that yeah. you know what i mean yep. it's it's when is the glory of god going Come, to return back here. to us and 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 in a sense you know god is is painting a picture of his return return of his glory to his people in a way that they can understand understand and, and, and picture and, and yeah. visualize yeah. now i mean you know one of the problems of course when they did actually return you know it didn't really look like Ezekiel's temple. No, I, I mean, right. it didn't even really look like Solomon's temple. And so there has always been this, and there's a you know long tradition of rabbinic interpretation of these chapters and what this could refer to. And it's plenty, there's so much discussion around these chapters. You, you, you're not wrong when you say that, you know, there are lots of people have been scratching their heads over how to, yeah. you know, how to interpret this. So that's that's kind of the big picture. You know, we're, we're talking about the return of God's glory. It's answering that. Uh, that question. Uh, there's the elements of the new creation there. It's you know using these symbols drawn from the temple, and uh, and it's describing theologically really the elements of of a new creation. There's the connection with Revelation 21, so and 22, and in in a way for John, he's reinterpreting this through the lens of fulfillment in Christ. That's why in John's uh, holy precinct in his holy city there's no, no holy, holy. there's no temple no as temple. such yeah. no altar mm. because that's been fulfilled so you get this sort of unfolding thing yeah. a great way to lead into this to, to chapter 40 which you've just done yeah. is just the very last part of chapter 39 where where god's now starting to talk about displaying his glory among the nations that's kind of the lead into yeah yeah he says verse in fact the very last verse yes. of chapter 39 is i will no longer hide my face from them mm. For I will pour out my spirit on the people of Israel, declares the sovereign Lord. Yeah. And of course, then you've got this this grand vision. Yes. Right. Now, let me show you this grand vision. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and a key part of this is in uh, chapter 43, as we'll see, is the return of the glory. Of the Lord. Um, yeah. Now, just moving through some of the details of yeah, this great. now, Stu. First of all, it's interesting. It's in the 25th year of the exile. That's significant. And again, Numbers are significant because, of course, uh, the imagery of the year of Jubilee comes to mind. And this is the halfway point Mm. uh, to Mm. the year of Jubilee. So it's a point that, that I guess, points to to a Jubilee. I mean, they're they're not literally halfway there, but but the 25-year point, you know, in a Jewish mindset, 25 years marks you know, 25 years to a, yes. uh, to, to a jubilee. So it is pointing beyond to their liberation, basically. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a way of, 
uh, of doing that. So, and it kind of alludes here a little bit too to how long uh, Ezekiel had been in exile prior to the fall of Jerusalem as well, because it kind of says fourteen years after the fall of Jerusalem, yeah, after the city. So that gives us a bit of an insight. That's right. How long. Yeah. Uh, Ezekiel was already in exile for. It's yeah. interesting. He, he the vision takes him to a very high mountain. I don't know if you notice this, but he doesn't he doesn't identify that with Jerusalem or Zion. And you sort of th- there could be some reason to do that. But the interesting thing is when you go to the divisions of the land, as as one one of the most prominent commentators on these chapters pointed out that that when you when you work with the divisions, the sacred precinct, the strip in the center actually kind of moves north. Now, now some reconstructions of this still have Jerusalem as the mountain. Okay. And this is the, 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 uh, Ian Dargoid. I can't, don't know how to pronounce his name, but wrote the new international commentary in the, uh, old Testament as right. well as the NIV application commentary. And yeah, he, he points out that the sacred strip actually moves a bit north and, and it, and it seems like that where he sees the temple precinct is actually more aligned with uh, with Shiloh than Jerusalem. Oh, wow. Okay. So there could be given possibly given that there was a sense in which mm. you know Mount Zion had been desecrated that perhaps there was some sense of moving beyond that. Now I mean it's just interesting that he doesn't necessarily uh, mention which mm. he doesn't mention what mm. the uh, what the mountain is. However, I mean, look, that's a suggestion. As I said, there are reconstructions of this that that do still have uh, Jerusalem as the, you know, Mount Zion as mm. the, or the mountain of Jerusalem as this and again, very high mountain. It's just that he's not, yeah, he just doesn't mention, he doesn't, which is interesting yes. for the absence of a mention of Jerusalem. Yeah. You know, Isaiah chapter two, in Isaiah chapter two, you know, Isaiah says, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the chief among the mountains will be raised high above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many uh, will come and say, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. Uh, He will teach us his ways so that they will walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So, so there, there, there's still a, there's still an association with, with Zion and Jerusalem, but you know, is this a new Jerusalem Mm, here? mm. Is this, uh, yeah. Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, they won't worship me on this mountain or that mountain. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So it's, and again, remember, this is a vision. And so he's, he's talking to them in the context that they'll understand at the time, which they are at at that moment. Yeah, that's right. And so he sees, he goes to this high mount. So he's moved from a valley. Remember that like the, the Valley of Slaughter, which is where uh, the battle of Gog and Magog and, and the Valley of Dry Bones. So he's yep. moved from there. Now he's moved to this mountain, and that geographical shift is important uh, in these in these visions. And he goes to the high mountain. He sees something. He sees a group of buildings that look like a city. Now this is actually the temple mm. precinct, and the reason it looks like a city is because it's it's all walled in. It's got these uh, massive walls uh, around it, and this is a uh, you know the walls that he sees. These they're actually like about ten meters. Uh, sorry, ten feet um, deep. Yeah, t- ten feet by ten feet, mm. uh, so about three meters by three meters, and uh, and that is again to mark it off. It's very much separating the holy from the common, yep. and uh, that's an important idea uh, through this. So it's like a compound. It's a walled. It's a walled compound, uh, and so and then you get these gates. You, mm. These and they're they're massive fortress style defensive gates. Yeah. And you get this then within these gates, this buffer zone between the temple. So you've, you've sort of the guards. It's, it's all this language yeah. of separation, right? Yeah, it's yeah. 
Uh, and you do, even this, you get this in Revelation 22, that on the inside and the outside and on the outside of the, you know, uh, are those who, you know, who are defiled in some sense, you know, and, and then in the inside. So even this sort of language of of them there being outsiders and insiders uh, in Revelation 22 is still yes, there. Yeah. Um, you know, it's it's th- those who have been made holy and those who have who have not been made holy mm. that gets retained in uh, in Revelation 22. Um, and so you've got yeah, so you've got these buffer these buffer zones here. And again, there's a theological picture of you know of the holiness of God and and the importance of that and and the distinctness that, uh, that's being marked there. Yeah. The inner court is this perfect square. It's interesting that's actually elevated another 3 meters high. It's yes. guarded by another three gates. So you've really got you've got the temple architecture but You've also got elevation within the temple architecture. In the original temple, uh, it was just a flat space with the with the parts. But in the the inner court of the temple, uh, it's again you know elevated by another three meters, which is significant. You know, mm. so you mm. can't even see really over the top of that. And uh, and then it's got another three big gates, and so you've really got this you know grades of holiness here yeah, in yeah. a sense you know um and that actually is a perfect square as well the inner court is a perfect square yeah and in the center of the inner court is the altar uh, that that takes so it's interesting that in the original temple the altar wasn't centralized but here it is it's in the center of the yeah, square right. yep you know that's just interesting the way that this the way that the furniture works and the way that it puts the um you know the altar into the into the center that's what we have in chapters 40 to 42 uh and again i'd encourage listeners to you know j- jump online and google a picture of uh, Ezekiel's temple. There's some great 3D kind of walkthroughs if you're interested yes, in that. Kind it, of stuff. There are, yeah, there's some, you can, there's lots of stuff uh, available. Um, and then, of course, uh, importantly, chapter 43, uh, we have this vision of the glory of God returning to his temple. And, um, you know, he says, then the man brought me to the, to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of God, the God of Israel, coming from the east. Now, remember, in uh, earlier in Ezekiel chapter eight, we have this vision of God moving out towards the east. Now God is coming back to the east. Now the sense here is that whereas in the earlier vision that the movement away was this gradual staged move, it was you know he was here and then he was there and then he was here. Here there's the, almost this sense of not a slow staged movement back, but a sudden back. move back. Right. Yeah, yep. like I'm back. That's right. Uh, so verse four, the glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east, and the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the inner court, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, the other interesting thing that happens here is that the eastern gate is then closed, closed. Yeah. and locked, and and never to be opened. never to be opened. Yeah. So the sense is here that the glory of God is returning and will never, never again leave. depart. Yeah. That's the idea. Yeah. So chapter forty-four is where this talks about the closing of the, of the eastern gate and um uh you can you, know, you can visit this site today the actual site of the eastern gate is uh, was built you know reconstructed by the um by the crusaders uh and they they walled up the gate because they believed that Jesus uh entered the Temple Mount by this gate on Palm Sunday, mm. and that it should be closed until he returns to re-enter the Temple Mount. So, so the structure 
that's there today and the blocking up of that gate you know represents that uh, that belief on the part of the the crusaders uh certainly zechariah chapter 14 presents the messiah coming to the valley on the eastern side of the temple in preparation for his em- entry into the temple area and you know th- this sort of is the evidence that this gate should remain closed until jesus returns uh, so it's actually called the Golden Gate. The Golden Gate, yeah, that's right. Uh, today. And it's actually, it's a significant site, not only uh, for Jews and Christians, but also for uh, Muslims, Muslims as well. Yeah. Muslims believe that the gate is going to be the, fi- the the site of the final judgment, mm. and they call it the gate of heaven and hell. They believe that the final judgment of humanity is going to take place before the eastern gate, mm. and, mm. Uh, and you know, the redeemed are those who will be allowed to enter Inter- the Temple Mount, and all others are going to be outcast. So actually- yeah. They've got their, their the Muslim cemetery is actually alongside that eastern wall in right. anticipation of that happening. Uh, for that. Wow. So, you know, if you if I guess if for some if you're really privileged, you got to be buried like right there in the uh, on the eastern side of the wall. So Maybe first you're, in line, you're first in line somehow. <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah. Um, so anyway, because the interesting thing is on the other side of the hill, you've got. You know, uh, going up to the Mount of Olives, uh, you've got all, all the Jewish, Jewish cemeteries. cemeteries, and mm. and I think there's a bit of a dig at that too, because on the Day of Resurrection, it's like, ha ha, where sort of first in line, yeah, something yeah. like that. It says, except it says the first shall be last and the last. <laughs> I mean, even still fighting in, from the oh. grave, you know. Oh man, you you feel you just feel the yeah. uh, you know the tension there between you know the tension of worldview. It's such a it's such a fascinating and in in such a complex place. Mm. Uh, anyway, mm. so that was chapter forty four. Th- that yeah, so that's chapter forty four. Shuts the, the gate yep. behind him, and then there's this figure of the prince who, who's mm. interesting. You know, there's been some discussion over who this prince is, and you know, and some have seen this as well. The prince is is the Messiah, but there are some problems yeah. uh, with that because the the prince uh, offers sacrifices for his own sins. He's mm. given very limited powers. It it, mm. it looks in the text, it looks like his powers are being limited, not expanded, uh, in yes. some sense. Yes, and I think it's better actually to see this as a sort of a a limitation of kind of worldly power in favor of divine power exercised through this priestly group because yeah. you know the priest has that one level of separation you know the the um you know the priests are in the center and then the prince you know he he sort of is is next in line one of the problems of course um leading up to this period and and leading to the fall of Israel and this has been addressed in Ezekiel was the the way that the shepherds really corrupted the sheep in a sense yes. and and God through Ezekiel is holding uh these false shepherds to account to account yeah. and so yeah. it's natural then that this would address that that the the prince you know it's interesting he's not referred to as as the king he's referred to as the prince and he is this figure of relative importance but not absolute importance yeah. here and yeah. and so i you know i see a lot of commentators prefer to see this as a sort of answer to the problem of kings just being a little bit too, just a little bit too exalted, perhaps, and right. and so this you know limits the powers of the prince, and and there's a you know there's a concern here for justice and 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 so forth. So 
this is, I think, bringing, I guess, an ideal around leadership and what leadership looks like okay. and yeah, you know, right. godly leadership, like servant leadership. You know, I think Jesus picks up on these themes yes. uh, yeah. about true godly leadership. It's not about lording it over people like the Gentiles do, mm. but mm. Um, uh, this more servant leadership thing. And I think in some ways that same theme is being uh, possibly addressed here uh, with, uh, with these instructions uh, around the prince. In in chapter forty five, uh, but oh, by the way, it's interesting. We get further uh, in chapter forty four. You get this further refinement of who actually can minister in the temple. It's yeah. not just any Levite, but yeah. only Zadokite priests. Yeah. So the whole holiness code that Ezekiel as a priest is very familiar with. This is now refined significantly because remember we're at a time where. Who gets to be counted as God's people is refined now. We're now down to a remnant, the remnant yes. of Judah. Yep. Uh, in this vision, the serving priestly family then is also being refined to the mm. to the Zadokite mm. uh, priest, you know, based on them. The faithfulness of, of Zadok, uh, the priest. And then, of course, in the New Testament, we see Jesus takes the place, you know, of the that's priesthood right. in a sense. So yeah, we no right. longer have the Levitical or Aaronic priests we yeah. now have the new priest which we we see in yeah that's priest, right yeah uh, one peter yep. in chapter 45 this is where we get the the distribution uh, of the land mm-hmm. and and i've talked a little bit about that uh, already with that sacred strip of land and as i said you can even have a look at a at a layout of the land there's actually a few different Versions of yeah, that? The, yeah, there's a slight, few different interpretations uh, of that. Uh, you've also got land for the prince there. Um, I mean, this is the, the land for the prince is is also important. This is addressing some you know problems around territory as well. He's that the prince has set land, and it's not to exceed that. You know, think of you know the story of Naboth's vineyard. You know, with Ahab, yes, and he took yes. his land, and yep. you know, so this is kind of setting limits on that, mm. that he can't just take over whatever he wants. Mm. You know, which for uh, you know kings in the ancient world. You know, pretty much, you, you own the whole lot. Yeah. Well, here, no, if you no, could you take don't. It, it's yours. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Here, that's it's, no. it's limiting that. This, I mean, some real, really interesting ideas here around mm. leadership as well. If yeah, you yeah. if you really totally. look into this, it's interesting here too that uh, while the people, because uh, it addresses chapter forty five, also addresses the offerings that the yes. people are to bring, yeah. and it's interesting to note that the prince is actually to provide a lot of the offerings. The, the um, you know, the people provide the materials for the regular offerings, offerings, yeah. but it's the prince's responsibility from his own resources, actually, mm. to provide the offerings for the special uh, occasions, you know, the mm. Sabbaths, the new moons, the annual festivals. Th- he has actually a central role as the representative of the people in worship. That's the point. Right. You know, so he, he is the sort of the first worshiper in that sense, the yeah, prince. Right. So, th- yeah. you know, again, there's a correction uh, where it had in the past been politicized. You've got kings that are mainly known for their, you know, uh, political uh, machinations and, mm, mm. Uh, you know, their warring and so forth. But here is primarily as a worshipper. So you get this kind of Davidic figure right. here. That's, that's the sense that you get right. um, is someone that looks a bit more like David. But again, uh, not to the extent because he's also bringing offerings for his own sins and so forth. I think it's a, I, I do think it's a potentially a bit of a stretch to see this as a messianic figure. However, it's not impossible because you could, again, you could take that symbolically as well. So, 
We're not we're not pre- presenting very clear no. uh, answers here, Stu. But it's difficult yeah. to get clear answers the more you think about it. But you know, it, again, the question probably is in terms of what Jesus did. What, what's the point of the sacrifices? Which I guess is the question we're asking here as we look at this as a future, yeah, as a future thing. And and it, and I think what you're alluding to there, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that this is more an act of worship, yeah, uh, than necessarily atonement. Even though it, it does say for the atonement of sin, so yeah. Um, it, it is difficult to kind of get a clear understanding of the meaning of this. But again, let's remember this was being shared with a group of people who obviously were very familiar with this form of temple worship. Yeah. And uh, and I think really the big key here was through the vision that Ezekiel was sharing is that, that God was going to return to his people and he yeah. was never going to leave them again. Yeah, you know? yeah. no, that's right. Uh Chapters 45 and, and 46 actually, again, deal with this issue of the land. I mean, yes. the, the, the issue of the possession of the land, I mean, this is a pressing concern for these essentially landless exiles. Uh, well, because land held a very specific, you know, spiritual yeah, context. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. it's not just a block, my block of land and I'll grab another one over there. No, no, there was a whole ancestral spiritual ownership of this yeah, land. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, and, and that was a... An eternal promise. It was an everlasting promise yes. uh, yeah. as well. And so this is where, you know, the connection with the Jubilee, I mentioned the 25 year, yes. you know, it's 25 years to the Jubilee. Well, Jubilee meant that the land was restored to its, to its original traditional owners, traditional owners right? Yeah. So so I think there's there's a sense of that, that God is going to fulfill his promise, but in an even greater way. You know, and so he's fulfilling his promise, but it's not going to go back to the land divisions in Joshua. It's not even going to go back to Judah and Benjamin receiving their land. You know, it's not just about the land of Judah, but it's actually all 12 tribes. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. yeah, Exactly. Uh, So, and they're all going to receive their portion of the land. Um, This is where you get that, you know, and so you think, man, the 12 tribes, all 12 tribes are restored here. Now, we've already seen in chapter. 36, the yes. second half of chapter yep. 36. The drawing of the, the nations. That's right. Yep. The draw, This idea of the of gathering the, of the nations. You know, the breaking, the, mm. the stick that he joins yes. together to yep. become one stick. So the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. He's going to restore uh, them both together under one king, uh, the Messiah. And so here, you know, again, you get a different, you get an expression of that same promise, but in, in a different sort of sense. Mm. So. Mm. In chapter 47, uh, we have this stunning uh, picture of the river. Yes. Uh, the river flowing out from the temple. Now, this image of a life-giving river flowing from the sanctuary, we actually get this in, in a number of places in Scripture. Yeah. It's quite a uh, quite a ubiquitous vision here from the opening chapters of Genesis, where we have the river flowing uh, from Eden and watering, you know, wa- like watering the garden, and pretty much, and then famously in Revelation chapter twenty-two, you got the river, river of life flowing from the f- the throne, mm. and water was such a sign of purification in, in yeah. these days. Yeah, you know, it's like you know, water was the form of purification and and of and of life as well. Yeah. Really, it, yeah. you know, totally. and, and you know, Psalm forty-six, there is a river whose streams make yes. glad the city of God. And yeah. 
So, I mean, a couple of some interesting features of this stew uh, to note, and this is one that you could easily miss. Um, you know, it's, he says that the water uh, was flowing from the south side of the temple, south of the altar. Now, this is where the brass sea, there was a, there was a, 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 a big container of water, like a, you know, probably the size of, of a kind of jacuzzi, uh, you know, kind of small pool, but it was referred to as, as the sea, the brass sea. And, that's actually in in the original temple furniture is quite a rich piece of symbolism there because of course the sea for ancient people had this association chaos. with the powers of death and chaos and mm. so by referring to that as the sea it's like contained within the sea is contained within the temple precinct yeah, right. it's it's controlled and contained yeah. and and so there's there's almost this symbolism there that that the powers of death and chaos are contained within the holy place of God. You know, they have their place and it's contained. Now, the interesting thing is here, instead of with the temple furniture, is that we don't get, instead, we don't get the brass sea. Instead of the brass sea, we get this this flow of this river, river. right? Yeah. So you still get water and, and the that water was also used by the priests for cleansing yes. as well. yes. Symbolizing the cleansing of sin as well. It's interesting the association with death and then the cleansing from sin and so mm, forth. There, mm. but here you get the river of life instead of this yes, uh, brass sea yeah. resembling uh, resembling death. And and mm. but there's still the idea, you know, of cleansing here. And, and as we'll see, uh, of healing as well. It starts with a trickle, interestingly, and yes. it ends in a torrent. That's not yeah. you, that's not really you know normally how things river, work. Yeah. You know, so uh, it it. As it goes outwards, it actually increases. It gathers, yeah. uh, not because it's got lots of other trickles joining it, like mm-hmm. you know, like you know, rivers are fed by many uh, different you know springs. This is just the one trickle mm. that, as it goes further and further, and of course, he's told, you know, he steps into the river, and it's up to his, his ankles, ankles, and then it's up to his knees, and, he, yep. and and to the point, and then it can't. becomes this. Yeah. This vast, uh, this vast river that no one can cross, you know, it's giving uh, life to all sorts of things. So it flows. And and the interesting thing is the further it goes out, the more it broadens. And Mm. and here there is this vision. And the deeper it gets. And the deeper it gets. Right. And so there's this sense that, and this is the importance of this vision, while the holy precinct is walled in and contained the holiness of God, it's not to shut out you know, it's it's not like God saying, I'm shutting myself in, as it were, and, and to shut everyone out. In a sense, what God is saying with this is that, and this by extension, you know, we can apply to our lives in the sense that being holy, we we, we are to be holy, not so that we can become an enclave, mm. but so that we can reach out with greater power, Yeah, you know, so that we can be a light to the nations. Yes. So the walling in of this temple precinct and the separation, you know, the creation of this holy precinct is not an end in itself. Because of the creation of that holy precinct, there is the creation of this river that then flows out this river and brings healing to Correct. all of the world, yeah. right? Yeah. So there's this, you know, fulfillment of the Abrahamic promise. Yep. I will yeah. bless you, right? And, and, and you know, you'll... I'm setting you apart yes. and you are going to be blessed, but not just as an end in itself. Yeah. I'm, I mean, in a way it, it is, of course, because, uh, you know, people are ends in themselves. But anyway, mm. you know, he then says, and through you, all the nations of the earth will bless, mm. will be blessed. Mm. And so um, here we see the, the, um, 
river going east and significantly going down into the Dead, Dead sea. sea. So he's using the geography of uh, of the land to illustrate familiar. something. Yeah, yep. to them. Yep. Uh, so it flows into the Dead Sea, which is very, very dead. Yeah. I mean, it's you know uh, nothing can live in yeah. that in that Dead yeah. Sea. Uh, and when and it hits the sea, it turns to fresh. That's water. right. Yeah. And all along the side of the river, I mean, trees are growing and yeah. there's they're bearing Fish their fruit, perpetually bearing yes. their fruit. Yeah. I mean, this is you know, this is. At this point, this is where you really do see that this is theological. You know, it's it's like in some sense, everything so far you think, well, that could be literally yes. fulfilled. Yeah. But here, you've 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 very much got a theological vision. Yeah. You know, yeah. of uh, of you know a river that starts with a trickle and becomes a great torrent. Uh, it's going out to the nations. This is essentially what you see in Acts chapter two when, you know, they start speaking in these mm. miraculously in these different languages with it has this uh symbolism in that miracle that the gospel is now going to go uh, out. You know, that the, the yeah. flow of God's spirit that had been poured out is now going to cross all national boundaries, going to go out and out and out and yeah. bring life, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and so you get that imagery here with the, you know, flows into the Dead Sea and everything comes to life. It's a stunning, mm. uh, stunning mm. vision. And yet, yeah. yet, and yet verse 11 is a bit of an odd one there. It's like, you know, in the midst of all of that, yet its swamps and marshes will not be healed. They will be left for salt. Uh, yeah. Well, well, that's important because salt was very, very valuable. So uh, I, I think... Okay, I think in the vision, they're not being robbed of anything. Not, right, yeah, that's I right. It'll be left for, for salt, salt. Yeah, not left as salt in a sense. But yeah, that's for right. Yeah, salt. right. Yeah, so that's being so. There's still the source of what was one of the most valuable materials in those times, which yeah. is yeah, which was salt. So right. yeah. there's an he revisits the the boundaries Waters, of the land, the tribal allotment. Yeah, it's interesting here. Just just some features to notice no, about this actually. First of all, it's it's a larger area of territory than was ever controlled uh, by Israel. So, uh, first of all, it's it's uh, depicting something larger than they ever had. But it's actually the same land that was promised to Moses. That what's described here, all right, exactly matches what was promised to what God promised to Moses that He would give His people. Right. So this is about fulfillment. Yes. And the interesting thing is, it doesn't include the Transjordanian areas, like east of the Jordan. Remember, yeah. in, yep. according to the story, they some of the tribes, the half tribe of Manasseh and and Reuben and Gad, they said. We let We're us take over there. Yeah, yeah, just we will. We'll stay here. We'll stay here yep. and have these lands and and. But that actually wasn't originally part of the plan. But yeah. there was a concession. Yes, you can have those lands. Now here it doesn't include They're that. Not included because yeah. this is really about showing that the promise to Moses uh, is uh, is fulfilled. Yeah. It's also really interesting here is the fact that foreigners are given a full hereditary portion and made full citizens here. Mm-hmm. I think that's enormously significant. Verse 22, you are to allot an inheritance for yourselves and for foreigners residing among you and who have children. You are to consider them as native-born Israelites. Along with you, they are to be allotted an inheritance among the tribes of Israel. Israel. Now, remember, this is on the back of the river of life flowing outwards, right? So this, I think, is is important because it's a, it's a... a symbol of the inclusion of the nations, yes. uh, you know, being grafted into Israel. Yeah. So they're not, they're no longer to be sort of Separate. second class, uh, you know, like proselytes, mm. um, 
No, they're full. They they have a full uh, inheritance, inheritance. Uh, yeah. alongside uh, Israel. So that's uh, that's a really interesting uh, feature uh, of this. As I said, it's different to Joshua's division. It's more even, and it's also oriented along the sacred east-west axis. Yeah. You know yeah. that's important. So it's again, there's a symbolism symbolism in that the temple furniture was oriented along that sacred east-west sort of axis, mm. and that's mm. as I said, there's some. There's, you could possibly read this if you look at the divisions of the land. You set it all out. As I said, you could possibly see this as landing on Shiloh as the, but that's that's a little conjectural. But and it's interesting too that the prince's land here has intermediate importance after the priests and Levites I've mentioned that uh, as well. Uh, yeah, there's some interesting features of this. I, the most interesting one here, the one that I uh, highlighted here was that portion for the foreigners. I just, that was like, wow, I, I hadn't uh, noticed that yeah, uh, no. as, as starkly yeah. Uh, before. Yeah, That's pretty much where we finish. Uh, right at the end, we have this bit about the gates of the city. Um, and so- And of course, the name of the city at the very yeah, end. Yeah, that's right. The city is a, is a perfect square. Yeah, that's, yeah. The, the temple- uh, precinct is the, is a perfect square, and the name of the city is the Lord is there. That's mm. where it it finishes. And you know, relating that to Revelation twenty one and twenty two, uh, you know, the promise was, "I will be with them, and they will be my people, and I will be their God." The emphasis on, "and I will be with them," mm. and so the key thing about all of this, chapter forty right through to chapter forty eight, the key thing about this is that God will be there. That's the promise for the people. I will be with you. I will dwell among you. That's the promise that's stated here. It's repeated right through the book of Ezekiel. This is a major theme. I will be with my people. It's such a beautiful way to end this book because it states the goal of everything. This is God's heart's desire is to be with his people and to be their God. And as I said, it's repeated through Ezekiel. And it's what God wants for any of us. He's drawing us in to his presence, into his holy place. He's giving us access. He's grafting us in, as we've said. We are the foreigners that have been, as Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 2. After Daniel, we're going to actually go back to the New Testament. We're going to talk about Ephesians. You know, he talks about, you know, once you were aliens and strangers, but now you've been brought in and you've been made part of God's house, right? You know, so he picks up on that that same imagery of this, the house of God and being included in that. And uh, But the goal of all this is that we would be with God. Thanks for listening to this episode of Thrive Deeper. Our home on the internet is thrivetoday.tv. You can contact us, ask questions, see all our resources and much more at our website, thrivetoday.tv. We really appreciate the questions and thoughts about what you're reading as we go through the Bible with Thrive. Until next time, our prayer is that these shows will inspire you to go deeper and thrive.